Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Friends, it's an honor and delight to be here with Professor Martha C. Nussbaum, who is the Ernst Freund Distinguished Service Professor in the Law School and the Philosophy Department at the University of Chicago. She converted to Judaism when she was 22 and is an involved member of Synagogue KAM Isaiah Israel in the Chicago's Hyde Park. Her most recent books are The Monarchy of Fear, A Philosopher Looks at Our Political Crisis, and The Cosmopolitan Tradition, A Noble but Flawed Ideal. Uh, Professor, thank you so much for taking time to talk. And thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you. I have been uh, an avid reader of your work and a fan of yours for, uh, for, for many, many years, so I'm, I'm very appreciative. Um, so to start, to start on, um, on this issue of, of animals, which I, I have uh, publicly many times said that it was a lecture I heard from you at Harvard University, which influenced my own life path on this and my own thinking very deeply. In what ways should and potentially should not vegetarianism or veganism naturally be extended more broadly to an ethic of nonviolence? Well, I think it's a way of thinking that makes us more sensitive to suffering all over. And so that, that's a starting point. So we should become much more attuned to the damage we do by waging aggressive wars. And that, I think, ultimately should lead to not waging any aggressive wars. But I do think that in all of nature, there is a principle of self-defense. So I'm not a complete pacifist. I think some wars, like the Second World War, were wars of self-defense that were fully morally justified. And I think in our lives with our, one another and with animals, there are occasions where our safety is threatened, where violence would, would be justified. Yeah, excellent, excellent. So in, in the anthropocentric worldview can easily lead to views of human supremacy and potentially to great abuses, of course. How, um, how can we maintain human rights and human dignity as elevated beyond animal rights while still keeping animal rights robustly intact? From the opposite direction, how can we move beyond an anthropocentric worldview while keeping human rights and human dignity intact still? <laughs> well, you know, I actually think the only morally defensible position is one where we agree that all sentient beings have rights in this world. We're all thrown into this world together and we have to live in it. <clears throat> and I think that we all should support one another's rights up to a certain threshold level. And that's what I try to define in my new book, what that threshold level would be, where there's a, a, an opportunity to exercise basic life capabilities. The only way in which I think humans are entitled to consider humans first is that we it is our own group we know much more about that group we have governments set up to deal with the needs of that group where animals we live with are concerned i don't think that lets us off the hook at all 
But where wild animals are concerned, we, we don't know enough about them to intervene very much. I think most of our interventions would be likely to be harmful. So our main goal should be stewardship of the environment to make the oceans and the lands and the skies safe for these creatures. But of course, that's <laughs> by now, that requires quite a lot of intervention already. Excellent. So hedonism, taking perhaps utilitarianism to an extreme, can only find value in pleasure and find no value in pain. How do we maintain suffering as an evil without falling into kind of a simplistic view of the goals and purposes of human existence at large? Yeah, uh, well, I mean, the first thing to say is historically, the utilitarians were the first in the European tradition, the first strong defenders of animal rights since late Greek and Roman times. And uh, so their keen attunement to suffering was a tremendous plus. But they led to, a, I think, a bad overemphasis on pain as the only thing. So someone today like Peter Singer, he's not able to articulate the many different things that animals need in order to live well, because they don't just need to have pain-free lives. They also need to be able to move, to associate with other creatures. I mean, think about how your life would be if you were free from pain, but you couldn't talk to your friends, you couldn't do your work, and so on. So every animal wants to be active in many different ways. So I think we need a more adequate sense of the goal. And once we have that, I think we're able to see that some forms of suffering may be good ways of getting to some other thing that we, we want to get to, like hard work is sometimes painful, but it's essential to, to get to a place where we can do really good work. But also, <clears throat> I think when we love people or other animals, often there's loss. And the grief that acknowledges that loss, I think, is a way of acknowledging the depth and importance of that love. My daughter, who was a lawyer for animal rights, died a little less than a year ago. Mm -hmm. And of course, I've been in a period of great suffering for the past year. But, you know, I do think one gains insight into the world and into oneself. And besides, one just marks the importance of that person. Just think if you didn't mourn the death of an adult daughter from a terrible medical calamity. So, you know, I think suffering has many purposes. You know, uh, it's almost like to, and, I'm, and first of all, I'm very sorry for your loss. I wasn't aware of that. Um, I, you know, I think a, a, any, any notion of love seems to include some level of suffering in it. Um, yeah. To open our heart yeah. And I think, you know, I study the, um, the Greek Stoics who thought that you should not open yourself up to suffering. And right. therefore they said, you just shouldn't love deeply. And right. the good Stoic father informed right. of the death of a child would say, says Cicero, I was already aware that I had begotten the mortal and that's it. No grieving. And, you know, to me, that's a, a, a superficial and inadequate life. These uh, emotions give our lives depth and make them worth something, really, because I don't think we're worth anything unless we love other people. Wow. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, just a side point, you know, that the Hebrew word for both patience and tolerance is sablanut. And it comes from the Hebrew lisbol, which means to suffer. That, uh, that in waiting with patience and in, in tolerating difference, there's a suffering that kind of emerges in, in the, in, by necessity. Um, yeah, well, I think that's true. And I think many people in political life now 
don't have that patience. And that's a big problem in our country. So they think that by being over-assertive, they can just win their way and they don't uh, wait for others. That's one error. Another error is just to say, oh, politics is too terrible. I'll just forget about it yeah. entirely and withdraw. And that's equally bad, I'm afraid. Yeah. So is, is, is the neo-Aristotelian capabilities approach your primary approach, you would say, to thinking about human responsibility toward non-human animals? And what are the benefits and limits of, of, of this approach? And, and again, these are absurd questions because you've written books on these, you can oh, talk right. hours on these, but. Okay, so what this approach does is to say that the goal of a decent government should be to protect what are called capabilities, which is not skills, but it's substantive opportunities for choice in areas that are deemed to be of central value. So then you have to say what those areas are. And I think one could do this for other animals as well as for human beings. Uh, and I, so I really do think one could use this approach to construct what I call a virtual constitution. That is, we're not really gonna have in any time that I can foresee a constitution protecting the rights of animals because people just resist this, but we can have the idea of it. And then we can try to make laws of a more piecemeal kind in nations and regions that do protect animal capabilities. Now, I think this approach is better than the typical anthropocentric approach saying, oh, well, because certain animals are very like us, we should protect those, but forget about the rest. I mean, to me, that's just the wrong way of thinking about it. Animals are what they are, and we should do it because of what they are, not because they happen to be like us. So then I think it's also richer, as I've already said, than the utilitarian approach, because it's able to value more things. I think utilitarians can defend a lot of confinement of large mammals in zoos because they say, well, so long as they're well-fed and they're not suffering, everything's fine. But they need their group. They need a rich social life. And usually they don't have that in the zoo. So I think my more pluralistic approach can see more things as of relevance. Now, of course, within the Human Development and Capability Association, noted note its name, Human Development and Capability Association. There are lots of young people who think Martha Nussbaum has deserted the poor of the world because she's paying attention to animals and she's not making humans absolutely prior. But see, I think that we should do both. I think that the only morally defensible thing is to work toward a world, a multi-species world in which we all live together on terms of decency and justice. And moreover, I think that's a part of our humanity. I think it enriches our humanity, or maybe it restores something that we lost from childhood, because I think most children do have a keen awareness of animal suffering, when we do acknowledge that we share the world with other species. So, so I think that the people in my association who think I've deserted the poor of the world are just wrong. Now, of course, both groups will have to accept limits. And I'm a great defender of contraception for both humans and animals, actually. Mm -hmm. and, and so, of course, we know this where our dogs and cats are in question. People think it's good for cats to spay and neuter. And the organization that my daughter worked for had a wildlife program. That's what she worked for. But then it had a big spay and neuter program that works for not having so many cats that are starving in the streets. But we haven't accepted this for wild animals, and I think that's probably good for now <coughs> because we haven't worked on the techniques of contraception. And right now, the techniques that exist are 
harmful. So, so we have to do better. But I think in the end of the day, I'm, I'm saying something that not all animal lovers accept, but I do think in the end of the day, both humans and other, all other animals need contraception in order to manage the limits of population that are causing habitat loss all over the world. Fascinating. So on these points in particular, or, or, or other dimensions of your philosophy work, is there a point or two in which you might point to of how Jewish texts may have contributed, Jewish values may have contributed towards your thinking? Well, you know, when I'm in synagogue, I, first of all, it's usually as a member of the choir and our great cantor, David Berger, always is inspiring me to think more deeply about all the emotions in my life and about grief. In fact, this evening, there's going to be a stream service uh, celebrating Kristallnacht because he's an expert in the music. Of, so music reaches me very deeply. And the recovery of some of the great Jewish music of Europe, which is his specialty, has been very important to me because I am an amateur singer and know classical music well. And so to have that musical tradition alive for me it does something for me. Uh, and and you know, maybe you'll say that's not so particularly Jewish, but, but of course it is the, the Jewishness of it, the marriage of Jewish texts mm. with the music of Europe that I have always known from childhood and care about. But I also think one concept that I think about constantly is the concept of tikkun olam, because I think this is really what we're dealing with here. We've broken the world. We are living in a way that does violence, not only to the natural environment, but to every single kind of animal. If you think of what goes on in a factory farm, the slaughterhouse, but also if you think about how whales in the wilds of the ocean are being killed now by swallowing gallons of plastic that we put into the seas, that is a broken world. So I do think that the Jewish concept of tikkun olam helps us think what it would be to work toward a world where instead of just dominating the seas, the air, and the land, we work in harmony with others to restore all of those areas of the world. Wow, wow, that's, that's very powerful. So, you know, just one, one little follow-up question before we conclude here, just since you brought up tikkun olam, you know, you may or may not have heard that the, the, uh, a week ago, the former uh, chief rabbi of the UK passed away, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. And, and, and I don't, and, and I wonder, because um, he was probably one of the most articulate Jewish writers around, you know, uh, human responsibility um, from a, a Jewish perspective. And I wonder, did his works, did, do his works at all enter into the academic ph uh, philosophical realm, or is it more in the interfaith space? Uh, I, I don't know his work. Okay. And I guess, for, for me, the very idea that a nation would have a chief rabbi is some sort of a category mistake. I think Judaism is so pluralistic and it's a good thing that it is. And it's a good thing that congregations, even within reform, which is my tradition, will hire a rabbi and a cantor who suit them and, and not just be dictated to by any authority. So anyway, I, I, there are plenty of Jewish thinkers that I care about. And Martin Buber has always been extremely important to me. My colleague, Paul Mendes Flor, has just published a biography of Buber, which is wonderful, and I read it and did a blurb for the jacket. So Buber is one, but you know, I'll take inspiration wherever I find it. My great uh, former rabbi of our synagogue, Arnold Jacob Wolf. Oh yeah. He, you know, he actually did my uh, bat mitzvah 
because I, you know, I had converted way back in 1969, but I didn't have about mitzvah, uh, partly because I converted to a conservative synagogue that didn't do that. And when I was in the reform tradition, I thought, okay, time to learn the candelation, learn how to do stuff. And I was lucky enough that Arnold was still alive and he blessed me at my bat mitzvah. He was wonderful and um, cranky and cantankerous. I wrote an article about my conversion and, and my feminism and how it went with my Judaism. And I sent it to Arnold and he left a message on my answering machine saying, you know what the trouble with you is? You're a goddamn reformed Jew. <laughs> <laughs> He, because I was uh, critical of some aspects of tradition, of course. He was too, but in his older years, he saw much more value in aspects of tradition that many Reformed Jews reject. And so he was just teasing me and being tough with me about that. But what I loved about Arnold was that all of his writings challenged us to make a unity of our religion and our morality. He really felt that Jews must be engaged in the struggle for justice here and now. That's why I converted to Judaism. I mean, I did it because I was getting married, but I also, you know, I thought that Episcopalianism that I was in, there was too much about the other world in it and not enough about justice in this world. So uh, I also find that emphasis throughout the Jewish tradition, not just in reform. Uh, obviously, Maimonides said a lot about that, uh, but I think it's starting with the Haskalah, really, with the Moses Mendelssohn and thinkers of that sort. The idea of this worldly justice it, it assumed increasing prominence. And in my synagogue, we have the largest food garden that delivers fresh food to the poor in the United States. So, you know, we do things that are involved in justice here and now. And I think that is what Arnold stood for. And that's what his whole life um, meant, meant to me. Thank you. That's a part that speaks to me very deeply also. Thank you so much, Professor Martha Nussbaum. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you.